knowing that if I do my job, Kate does her job, and everyone does their job as best as they can, that's firstly all that we can do. And secondly, we believe that's good enough to, to go and win this game. If, like me, you're fascinated by how really successful people think, you'll want to check out the Secret Leaders podcast. The host, Dan Murray-Serta, who was also on 40 Minute Mentor Series 3, chats to inspiring entrepreneurs who have built businesses, including Joe Malone, Monzo, Natural Cycles, and LastMinute.com. I loved having Dan on our podcast, and I'm a regular listener of Secret Leaders, so I can't recommend it enough. Just head over to any of the popular podcast platforms and make sure you hit subscribe. You won't regret it. In today's 40-minute mental episode, I had the real honor of speaking to Team GB hockey legends and Olympic gold medalists, Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh. It's one thing to win gold representing your country at the Olympics, but quite another to do it alongside the person you love. When Helen and Kate stood on the podium celebrating their victory at the Rio Olympics in 2016, they became the first same-sex married couple in Olympic history to win gold. In today's episode, we talk about their challenging road to Olympic gold, how you ease back into normal life after such a big event, and the scary reality of figuring out what to do next after achieving such a huge milestone in your career. Kate and Helen also tell me more about their new book, Winning Together, an Olympic winning approach to building better teams. And they also share some candid advice on what's needed to make sports a more inclusive and welcoming place. I loved my conversation with Kate and Helen, and their advice and insights are invaluable for anybody in a high-performing environment, whether that's sports or business. So if you're building a rapidly growing team, are thinking about making a big career pivot, or simply want some inspiration from two Olympic greats, this episode is perfect for you. So with all that said, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with a fantastic Kate and Helen Richardson-Walsh. Kate and Helen, welcome to The 40 Minute Mentor. It's wonderful to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good stuff. Well, we are going to do what we always do and start with some quick fire questions. Well, I'm going to say some sentences and if you could just complete them, that would be amazing. Right. So when I was younger, I always wanted to be... A PE teacher. Oh, that was quick. Yeah. I'm going to be very honest and I literally have nothing. I didn't want to be anything. There was... I've just Interesting. living in the moment. <laughs> I love your honesty. Great. <laughs> Second question. My first job was? It was a sales assistant in a shoe shop in Stockport. Sales assistant? This is very posh. Uh, mine was a paper round. Oh, classic first job. That is a classic. Okay, good stuff. <laughs> and when starting my career, I wish I'd have known? That it was all in me somewhere. Very deep. I wish I'd, well, I did know because my mum told me, but I wish I'd started a pension earlier than yeah. I did. That is a really good one. <laughs> I feel the same way. <laughs> I think, yeah, pension and just savings in general. I just really wish I'd have started saving sooner. That is a, that is a first, which shouldn't have been, it shouldn't be a first, but that is a first. So very, very well done. And finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV that could be a perceived failure or some sort of setback in your career that you've learned from? I think for me, 
I think probably people might look at what I've achieved, particularly in hockey, and say, you know, this is maybe what they might project or judge what I was like in terms of my personality. But I, I am and I was very, very shy. I've definitely changed. I think I've tapped into a bit more of extroversion as I've got older, but I was painfully shy. I would kind of blush bright red in any conversation. And I found, and that was up until my early 20s as well. I, was, I was, didn't like groups. Yeah. Interesting. That's a really good one. Yeah, that is a good one. I think there's just too many. <laughs> too many setbacks. There's so many learnings that I've had over the years. Okay, I'm, I'm just interested in terms of your one. How did you overcome that, I guess, natural introversion when it came to being a leader and, you know, having to deal with the press and all that sort of stuff? Where did, did is that something you just worked on yourself over a period of time? Honestly, I think it was looking back, I can say, I think it was because I wasn't comfortable with myself. And so because I wasn't comfortable in my own skin, I think I felt out of place. I either felt like I wasn't bright enough, I wasn't going to the right school, or I wasn't good enough in some way, shape or form. And so that came out as a kind of embarrassment. And so you know, it would, I would definitely recoil or, you know, pull away or blush, which then made me want to recoil. It was just another la- la- layer of shame. And I think as I got older, I just... I got to know myself a little bit better and I think once I felt more confident in myself and a bit more accepting of who I was then I think I found my voice um and the way that I wanted to be so it was it was that and I honestly was like even as captain when I was 23 I was still I was still blushing and standing up and you know going red in front of people so it was definitely you know well into my 20s when I started to develop it that is, I mean, it's amazing to hear. I think it's really great to hear that. And I, I'm sure there's so many people that will listen to this that that really resonates with. And actually probably just what they need to hear that like, it's okay to be that way. And actually in time, it just takes, a, sometimes it does just take a bit of time to kind of evolve as a, as a as a leader and as a person, but also just to be comfortable in your own skin. I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that, but thank you so much for sharing. Well, listen, it's, it's so wonderful to have you on the podcast. This is the first because it's the first that we've got a, a couple on the podcast. It's the first we've had Olympians on the podcast. So I'm very excited about this. And and you've both had incredible careers playing hockey, representing Team GB. And I think everybody that knows anything about the last few Olympics knows that it culminated in Olympic gold for you both in Rio. So we're going to dig into that story. And I'm really excited to hear about all the ups and the downs, which are often important to speak about too. But before that, we'd love to learn a bit more about the earlier parts of your lives and careers. And we've touched upon the very first job, but did you always both want to become international hockey players? I think for, well, for both of us, when we were playing hockey as a career was was just not an option. No. Um, I think sport for women in general, you know, was as a professional kind of entity didn't really exist unless you were a tennis player or, you know, very, very few sports where that kind of was an opportunity. And so, as I kind of already said, I just was in the moment I was just playing sport because I loved it. I enjoyed playing it. I played all sports, actually, not just hockey. And yeah, it was something that that happened rather than I planned for. No, yeah, exactly the same. I, I also probably, I was being selected for things, but I just think I, I just didn't think that was for me. I just thought it was for other people at the same time. So I just didn't have that aspiration to be anything other than what I was in that moment. 
Interesting, yeah. And I, I so it clearly evolved. When when did you become professionals then? What's the evolution in terms of career story? That'd be really interesting to explore. Well, I guess it depends what you what you mean by professional. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you mean professional in the sense of getting a wage? Never. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's always okay. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. We got funding through the lottery, and so therefore we did get some money at various times in our career, not all the time, and hardly anybody in this country would think that it was enough to live off. We did at times. Yeah. Um, some sometimes it was enough. And then, but in profession in the sense of, of, you know, training as hard as we can and giving everything to the sport. Uh, yeah, I think from when I was probably made it into the senior team or just probably a, a year after, I made my debut when I was 17, played for the England team and then, yeah, was training for the, the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000. I think that's when, when I thought I was doing it professionally. I think definitely since then I learned actually how to train professionally but mm. yeah it was it was probably really when I was doing it that that's when it started. We played for such a long time in 18 years in the national team we we got to experience it at that very beginning phase where we didn't really have psychologists nutritionists we would you know we'd have physio a coach I mean video in those in the in the early early days was like a VHS tape sent <laughs> home to us you know you think now management that's around is about 10 people and they have every bit of expertise that you could want and need um, around that team so we we've definitely kind of seen that change over our careers that's amazing and so when you were kind of in the early parts of your international career were you were you doing other jobs at the same time like how did you manage the the tension between kind of paying the rent and trying to be the best hockey player you possibly could be yeah, no, there was a lot of that. Everybody kind of was either working or studying. There were a fair few students, to be fair, as well. I remember I dropped out of uni because I chose the wrong course. It was the wrong time. And so I just got some really rubbish part-time jobs. I remember getting £6 an hour working for British judo stuffing envelopes and working in a, a hockey factory and printing numbers on shirts and things like that because I wanted to have enough time to, to train properly. And that was the thing that allowed me to do that. And because I didn't have a career outside of hockey that I wanted to pursue at that time, mm -hmm. I, I, I do now, but and I did later. But that was what was kind of a means means to an end for me. Yeah, you just just you just found a way to make it work. And I think even those people that did have very clear visions of what they want, whether it's an accountant or a doctor or a surgeon, they still were determined to find a way to make that work, to make it flexible enough that they could train as they needed to train and do the other things that they needed to do so it was people just found all manner of ways to get it done yeah and I guess that's when it's uh I mean it, it it's a it's a passion at the end of the day but it's also I mean it, it I mean this the commitment that goes into building a high performing team and to become an international athlete is just immense so and, and you certainly didn't win a an Olympic gold without like tons of hard work loads of sacrifices I'm sure so many obstacles along the way. So I'm sure our listeners would be really interested to to hear a bit about that. What what were some of those biggest challenges that you had to overcome, uh, and and how did you how did you both adapt to like the intensity of an international environment? I know I know you both played earlier, like when you were relatively young. So how did yeah how did you cope with some of those things? Well, I loved everything about it. I loved the obstacles. I loved the challenges. I loved the stress of it. 
I think from quite an early age. And so actually, you know, you talked about sacrifice. I never felt like I was missing out on or sacrificing anything because I thought I felt so lucky and privileged to be in this, in this moment, experiencing all of it. And because I I hadn't experienced, you know, Freshers Week, I went to university, I went to university three times. I started three <laughs> degrees. I completed one of them. Um, but, you know, on each occasion, you know, to completely miss Freshers Week, I don't, you know, I didn't, I didn't play for the university teams. Like I didn't, and it's because I hadn't experienced it, I didn't feel like I missed out on it, anything. The, all of my learning and growth and friendship group and support network came from being in and around that, that national team or playing probably in the, in the Premier League in the domestic game. So I, I think obstacles were, were many and were plentiful, but they kind of came either personally in terms of um, injury or lack of form or, you know, just learning and developing as a person. And then in a team sense, just all the, all the various ups and downs of, of the culture, of losses, of losing funding, gaining funding. There was, you know, there were just so many. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. The um, What's that phrase? Form is temporary, class is permanent. Um, I, I'm interested in that one, uh, you know, because uh, I guess all professional athletes go through and sports people go through periods where they're just they're in a purple patch and they're they're playing the best of ever and then then sometimes you lose your place in the team or sometimes just things don't go for you. So in those difficult days where you may have been dropped or you may have just been underperforming, how did you get yourself back up for it? How did you come through those difficult? periods of your career I think there's various things that did at various times certainly I think one of those things was probably towards the end of my career was actually really recognizing what my strengths were and I think this is something that anyone can really do we were never very good at knowing what our strengths were as individuals but also as a actually as a team and it's really important for you for you to know your strengths because that's your worth that's your value that's that's what you're bringing to a, a group, essentially. And when you really know your strengths and kind of you're able to then really deliver those with authority and, and certainty. And that for me was what I kind of went back to. If I was struggling with my form at any point or confidence, which a lot of people I know do at times, I would just try and remember why am I in this team? Why does the coach want me here? Why, what do the players around me value in me? And what can I go out and deliver with confidence where I don't really have to force it too much? And one of the things I always went back to is that we, I can work hard. I can always work hard. Uh, anybody can give that regardless of, of, of way, you know, kind of what your form is or anything like that. And I think, effort and hard work are actually two commodities that are very, very important in, in every sense and every career. When you're struggling, when you're in that place where everything just seems really hard, we focus, and I've been there, I focus on all the things I can't do and I get absolutely fixated on why can't I do this thing? This is, and I could do it, you know, five weeks ago or yesterday. Now I'm really struggling with it. And that just let just, you know, layers and layers upon layer of frustration and anger and and actually, just to go back to actually, what can I do? And as Helen said, you know, it might be that I can work really hard or I can communicate really clearly. I can still make connections with my teammates. You know, all the things, just focus on that and celebrate all the little small wins. And, you know, I mean, Helen's like Yoda sometimes. She's very wise. And, you know, she said to me in one of my worst bouts of form, let the form come to you. And I was just, at the time, I was like, ah, but it was so true. I was 
borrowing, borrowing, trying so hard, but digging a bigger, bigger hole for myself and actually just to pull back and give myself a bit of pause and say, okay, what can I do? And slowly but surely the form starts to come back to me. So it's, yeah, it's just being patient and kind to yourself as well. Yeah, that's, again, really good for people to hear because we all can put ourselves under a lot of pressure which and pressure is not a bad thing, but I think sometimes you get so in on yourself and and so you can get really really negative and actually forget that you can do it if you've done it before. You can definitely do it again, but sometimes it's actually it's like when you're in a rut of something, just going away, meeting someone different, bringing someone positivity, or or even going for a walk. You can just it can just totally change your perspective, and I think that's really important to, to for people to hear. I mean, you've been a part of just one of the great sporting teams in the last few decades and, and, and something that everybody that watched the Olympics would have been just so proud of and excited to watch that journey you went on. I'd love to know, what was it that was so special about that team that won Olympic gold? And what are some of the secrets to, secret sauce, the secret to the success that you had? Other than obviously brilliant talent and great leadership but what, what, what were some of the things that really kept you going over that that period and uh, and and helped secure gold I think for me the reason it was so special and it is, is this is going to be really difficult to describe but it was just a place where well firstly I could be myself and I could bring my full self knowing that the people around me wanted me to do that. And knowing that even if I was having a bad day, that that was okay, actually. And there was that trust in going both ways that they they were trusting me to, to, to bring my best. And if that was my best at that moment, then that, that was okay. And I think that's the thing. I think there was just such a lot of trust Mm. in the group and res- respect for one another even though we weren't all best friends not by a long shot there was just this kind of trust and respect that was underlying everything and I think it's just a really special place when you can be yourself like warts and all yeah was that kind of cultivated was it that the team was together for a, a sustained period of time that you all got to know each other's strengths and weaknesses and you kind of came together on that journey and you knew what your goal was and everyone got to a point where it's just flowed naturally. I mean, I'm just really interested in that because I, Clive Woodward came on the podcast and one of the things that he talked about, which I found really interesting, was everyone talks about the team, which is obviously super important, but actually a lot of the reasons that England won the World Cup in 2003 at rugby was actually by the individuals being as exceptional as they possibly could. So they did a lot of work on the individual and the kind of combination of all those different individuals playing at their ultimate peak kind of rubbed off on each other and helped the team in a bigger way. So I'm just, I'd love to know your perspectives on that. I think for us, there was the certainly the, first of all, being empowered to build, drive and own our culture. So we as the, the collective players and our staff built together our vision, our values and our behaviours. And I think that sense of being included in that process, being absolutely part of that process, meant that we were all accountable, we were all responsible. And so... It was therefore down to everybody having a role and every role having value and everybody having worth. So I think because we'd had those hard conversations, because we'd experienced for some of us some real highs together, but also, you know, with people in there who'd been playing for us 18 years in the end, 15 years, two years. But even in that in those different times, experienced real difficulty, challenge, upset, 
great joy. And actually, it's, it's all of that shared experience, whether it's in the hockey world or actually just in your life. It's sharing all of that that I think that really pulled us together and, and kind of bonded us together. Mm-hmm. So it's, but that was only allowable because we had that glue. Our culture was the glue that bound us together. And then all of those other conversations just supported that and en- enabled the trust that Helen spoke about. I just wanted to give a special shout out and thanks to our sponsors for this series, Chipper Cash. The team have been on an incredible journey, having launched their borderless way to send money across Africa and beyond in eight countries so far, and are widely considered to be Africa's most valuable startup. So go check them out at chippercash.com or tune in to our 40 minute mental episode with their co-founder and CEO, Ham Serenjoji. And on the on the actual day of the final, where you're playing for gold, I guess in some way, was there a bit of pressure taken off because you had a medal or was the pressure ramped up even more because you knew you could go for the gold? I'm just, none of us listening to this are probably ever going to be in that position. So I'd love to know how you dealt with the pressure of that situation and, and what that actually, like, was that like any other game or not at all? I think actually the fact that the pressure was not taken away by the fact we'd already won a medal says, well, it wasn't for me anyway. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I have to, do you know what? I haven't asked anyone else in the team that, but certainly not, not for me, I think goes to show where we were as a team that Mm. actually we're really aiming for and believing that we could win that gold medal. Because I know certainly in the past, I would have been in teams if we'd got into that situation, it would have been just been like, oh yeah. And we've seen it, haven't we? Oh, before, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. finals mm. all the time when you when you just know that that team is happy with coming second. Yeah. And we certainly weren't. And I think we'd done a lot of work on ourselves and again, collectively on being prepared for any moment. And that was a moment where we were very prepared for. And the way that we were prepared was by basically knowing our job and going out and delivering that, essentially. That's kind of what it came down to. Mm -hmm. Being, being, you know, so confident in the fact, in the processes that we'd put in place and and delivering on those processes, knowing that if I do my job, Kate does her job, everyone does their job as best as they can, that's firstly all that we can do. And secondly, we believe that's good enough to, to go and win this game. I will say I, I definitely did think there was an initial sense of relief. So when the final whistle went in the semi-final, you were in the final, there was it's a, certainly I felt like there was a, you know, and it's whether that's like we've definitely won a medal or is it that another job done? Because that was our seventh win in seven games. And, you know, actually, was it the same feeling actually after every game? Like, another, yeah, <laughs> job done. And actually, one of the very first things that was said in that team huddle after the semi-final win was one more game because it wasn't, as Helen said, go in the final, see what happens, you know, just let's enjoy it. It was one more game as we prepared for that first game against Australia, that semi-final game against New Zealand, same thing. And so there was probably a little bit of of both, but undeniably that sense of we were here to go and win that gold medal. I think there's a a misconception of big game scenarios and that you kind of you bring your best for the yeah. big game type yeah. stuff and and that's where lots of things can unravel a mm. little bit and it's no different in any other situation you know all my teammates want me to do is go out there and, and do do my job 
and we spoke about it as a team, you know, how it can be like going to an Olympic Games in general and you think, oh, so everything's going to be perfect. <laughs> I'm going to be the most amazing hockey player I've ever been. It's like, well, yes, you will be what you always have been. You're not going to suddenly going to be amazing any different to just because you're playing at the Olympics. And, and I think that's the kind of expectations that you sometimes just need to keep in, in check. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you achieved something that you had spent effectively your whole career, maybe your whole life aiming towards, and you got to that pinnacle. You won gold. I, I can only imagine the celebrations afterwards, which probably went on for a long time and were very well deserved. But how do you then come back to normal life from that? Because... You know, you do see it, don't you? Where people achieve the the pinnacle and then they struggle to adapt afterwards. So how did you deal with that experience? And how did you go on to then set new goals for yourselves after achieving this huge milestone? I mean, it's 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 incredibly hard. And I think whether you achieve when you whether you go out and, and achieve what you want to achieve, or you get to that point that's maybe an end point and you don't, there is there is often always an end of a cycle and a beginning of something new whether it's a financial year, an Olympic cycle, whatever it is, there is an end and a beginning. And and sometimes that can feel like an edge of a cliff. And I said that to my therapist, it felt like Rio was the edge of a cliff for me and that I was staring into the abyss and it looked very scary. Now, if you're going on and continuing to play, your kind of your thoughts and actions are immediately shifted to focus to the next thing. As athletes, you're constantly in that programming. You know this next four years, you know what tournaments are coming up. That doesn't make that easy, particularly if you've have achieved or haven't achieved. If you're then outside of that, I think then you have to deal with the low of finishing that, whatever that is for us, the, the Olympic cycle. And then what next? You know, you're not doing that anymore. You have to get back to who you are as a person, what you want to achieve outside of being who you were in that team. And and that, I think, is really challenging. And I think transition in terms of careers and sports is being talked about far more now in terms of the psychology of that. And, you know, even if you physically are going into a job straight after an Olympic Games or when you finish your career, people have struggled in exactly the same way of those people who don't know what they want to go and do next and, and don't have that motivation or have that purpose. And everybody just goes through it in different ways. And it is the grief cycle, effectively. And you have to allow yourself to go through that grief cycle and be supported in that as well. Yeah, I think that's the key thing is, and again, we were lucky that we'd had friends who had kind of gone through it before us. And I remember speaking to one of my mates and she said, I kind of started to feel a bit like myself after after two years. And I was like, two years? Wow. You know, and, and, it, and it was two years and some, you know, I think, pretty much going on for maybe four years for myself. For me, it was almost like, right, then get through the next Olympic Games. That would be like a, a line in the sun for me. And I think that's okay. And I think the key thing is, is just recognising it and accepting that that's the case. And that's okay. You can't necessarily switch off from that one thing and then move on to something else straight away. You know, we had dedicated our life to it. And, and you got to just give time. It's just give that sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And we're going to come on and talk a bit more about building a new career and transition because I think, I mean, whether it's it's from being an athlete or a sports person to to coming out of the army, it, there's so many people at the moment transitioning careers or pivoting careers. And I think this is a really important conversation to have. And one I'm, given what we do at JBM, one I'm really passionate about. Um, but but before we come to that 
that the the fame that came with Olympic gold, you know, was would have been the publicity was would have been immense uh, at the time. And then you had the added, I guess, interest in your story because you are the first same sex married couple to win Olympic gold, which is, you know, incredible in itself. And I'm sure will have blazed the trail for, for many more to follow. But how did you manage that aspect of being in the spotlight, probably having more attention on you than your your teammates? How did you handle that pressure? Yeah, I think it was something that we didn't really expect, actually. I remember, we remember kind of before the Olympics, you know, in, in interviews and stuff, it, our relationship kept coming up and it, I don't think we necessarily were expecting that. And and it was it was it was great, actually, in, in the fact that people were happy to be talking about it. And it was, so we were, were, were pleased in that sense. And then obviously when it, you know, when we won and it all just kind of blew up and went a bit crazy for a few months, it was lovely in the fact that for the first time in our career, we were getting recognised for doing something good. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> actually, there was a real sense of, oh, you know, I've been playing this sport for a very long time and, and barely anybody knows. And so just very grateful for actually having a little bit of, of recognition, which I think is a very human nature to have. And actually, again, in terms of us having maybe a little bit more coverage because of our relationship, again, I think we were really lucky that we got our team were just so amazing. I think it just in general, but also in terms of that, we were they were, I think, were always really supportive and encouraging of anything like that. So that made that a lot easier. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of old news to us and our teammates. You know, we'd been in a relationship for some yeah. time at this point. So, you know, it wasn't anything different. And I think they were actually, they were also pleased that we were kind of as part of a, a part of the team being given a bit of a platform, as other teammates were as well. We got to be able to talk about our culture. I think if you listen to any of the interviews <laughs> or read any of the interviews, you will definitely see them talking about the 31. You'll definitely get them talking about the behaviours or the vision, the values. And so actually it was it was getting our whole squad culture out there. It wasn't just about those two players or those that one, you know, or Maddie in goal. Or, it was about the 31 of us and many of whom weren't there on top of that podium in body, but they absolutely were in spirit. And that's the essence of the team. And so I think it gave us an opportunity yeah. to do that, which I think was was good. It's so wonderful that you went through it together because, you, you know, you'd been together for a while. You've obviously worked together individually and as a team to get to this point. And then as a couple to to achieve something that not many other people can like, because I, I would imagine as a, another half of somebody that won, wins Olympic gold, it's, it, in, in many ways, you're like, you're the proudest you can be. And you've seen the sacrifice and you've probably like been left alone quite a lot to, to do whatever it may be, whether it's the kids or whatever. But actually, you've both been there. You've both done it. And that must be like a unique and wonderful thing that you could both look back on going, wow, we actually did this together. And not many people can say that, which, yeah, it's, I think it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, no, it is, it is very cool. Very, very special to be able to do that. Yeah, I think loads of other partners of Olympians <laughs> probably do get the raw deal mm. and you know even if they're not athletes themselves and I guess we were very lucky in that because it could have ended very differently both individually and together and mm. so we were lucky that we did we were both there and both and both winning that medal mm. otherwise that that would have challenged us in a very <laughs> very different way yeah. so yeah it was 
a very nice thing to be able to share with with mm. your with your partner. Mm. No, that's awesome. Before we come on to sort of career transition, I just wanted to touch upon the fact that sport hasn't always had the best record when it comes to champion inclusivity for LGBTQ plus community. So what more can be done to make sport more welcoming? Because it feels like we still have quite a long way to go and you two are a high profile couple in that respect. I mean, I think across the board, sport can do a lot better in terms of all forms of diversity. You know, I think we need to stamp out racism, homophobia, ableism. I think there's still sexism. There's still a lot, um, there's still a lot to be done. And I think for the longest time, we've put, we've put sport on this pedestal and say, you know, wow, sport can be the, you know, the has the power to change the world. I think Nelson Mandela's quoted as saying that. And, and it does, it does have that power and it does reach people like nothing else does. And it does have the ability to break down barriers, but we have to make it sure that it does that. We can't just say, yes, yeah, sport is great. Well, it's great for the privileged, of, you know, for the white, middle-class, able-bodied, cisgendered, but is it good for everybody? And I think we have to go back to the real, from top to bottom in all sport and say, you know, who is it being built by? Who is it being built for? What impact can I have? How can I challenge things when I see them or hear them? What change can I make? And I think we have to do that in terms of the LGBTQ plus community. I think, you know, we have to think about every letter in that and every letter that's that's not in that. That We have to think about everybody's experience. And the only way we can do that is, is to listen and to create opportunities to really listen to what that experience is. Because at the moment, there's it's very polarised and there's a lot of vitriol and abuse and it's it gets nasty very quickly and I think we need to come to a place where we can just listen and understand and work to, uh, with a solution together. Yeah, no, I, lo- I love that. It's funny, isn't it? Sport is, and I love I love watching all sports and I played a lot when I was younger and it, it is unifying, but it's also incredibly divisive in many other ways and I think I, I, I totally agree with what you said there and I hope others will listen to that and we can actually move forward because it has the power to to do so much good and sometimes that gets lost I think but we've touched upon career transition and we all know that especially in in an athlete's career there comes a point where you can no longer probably operate at the same level and and you do have to to think about what what's next and you played many years at the top levels of hockey how did you both approach retirement from professional sport and did you have like a set plan in place? It sounded like it, it, there was definitely this transitionary period where you were working out what next. So yeah, our listeners, I'm sure would love to to know kind of what you did next and how you handled that at that time in your lives. Yeah, for me, I, I as I kind of said, I didn't really know what I wanted to do when I was younger. And it wasn't until about midway through my career that I started to get an interest in psychology I didn't see myself as as any kind of academic. I was very good at sport. That that was my thing. And I started a degree with the Open University, actually, because I thought, well, it was partly because the fees were going up. And I thought, I need to get in there before the fees go up. <laughs> <laughs> very sensible. For the next six years, if I do finish it. And so anyway, my my approach to this was, okay, let's just do one module at a time and see where it goes. And so that's what I did. And I did I did one module. We won't tell the story of me trying to do my first assignment, <laughs> which, oh which, which wasn't fun. <laughs> I just, you know, <laughs> an essay, which I'd never done before. And I, yeah, so I just did one module at a time. And six years later, I had a degree in psychology and it was something that I never thought would have been the case. You know, some of my teammates joked that I had a, 
a first from the University of Life, and that was way more important than um, <laughs> than than a degree from an actual university. And then since stopping playing hockey, I've, I've carried on that education. I've now got a master's in organizational psychology. Wow. So it's, Congrats. Um, yeah, thank you. It's it's really, and it came from an interest. It was a, a, a passion of mine and, and, you know, really fascinated by, by people and, and the mind and how we're able to get the best out of ourselves or, or not, which is probably more often the case. And so for me, you know, we were lucky because we were, we were encouraged to study or, or work alongside hockey, even when we were very full time, you know, there was time to do something and we were encouraged to, to take that opportunity and it was a case of just trying to have something there for when it ended. And for me, when it ended, I had a degree and not much else. I think, again, we were both lucky that we had an Olympic gold medal, which opened way more doors than would have been there, yeah. if I'm honest. And so, yeah. And then in terms of once I finished playing, it was then a case of, you know, just trying to think, well, what, what am I interested in, you know, are there any kind of roles available? And that's how I got into working with Spurs women as their psychologist. Um, it was yeah, just kind of asking questions and speaking to people and building the network and, and things like that. So, yeah. And my mindset was just a case of just see where it goes. Just follow, follow the interest and, and see where it goes. Mm. Keep learning, keep growing. So... I'd already said that I was going to retire immediately after Rio, so I knew that there was this, there was a line in the sun that I was absolutely definitely going to retire. And that brought, brought some clarity, but it made it also a little bit more scary, I think. And after 2014, when we'd had lots of issues as, as a team and, and also individually, I started seeing a therapist and started talking about that transition. And actually, it was brilliant to have that external perspective, somebody that was invested in me as a, as a therapist, but not a family member or a teammate or somebody that was invested in me in a different way, just to be able to prompt and ask me some really good questions and to challenge me on my, on my thoughts because it really did feel like the edge of, an, uh, of a cliff and it felt very scary because I didn't know what I wanted to do or be or go. And I remember Karen Pickering, a swimmer, she said after she retired, she talked about tapering down which I thought was a really good analogy. And actually, so we went to the Netherlands to play for a season for a club team over there, which was a really high level. It was still serious, good, you know, lots of training still, but it was less serious than the national team. So that gave us a bit of breathing space. We took the opportunity to do things that we'd never been able to do before. So we went on a really big trip to Japan, New Zealand and Canada, which we'd not been able to do for well, forever because we just <laughs> never, we had, you know, two weeks maximum a year off for a long time. So this was like, okay, well, let's use this opportunity and see it as an opportunity. And then, as Helen said, because we won a gold medal, because although the, the kind of stories that we tell and, and the, the cultural things that we hold so dear were as prevalent in London as they were in, in Rio, actually people, you know, get more interested in a gold medal than a bronze one. And so we started on the kind of keynote speaking circuit and had some brilliant opportunities to come off the back of that. And I think through that process, realised that I love working with people. We both do. And we were completely fascinated by people and teams. How do you get the best out of people? How do you get the best out of all of these totally different people together as one team towards one point? And whilst you were able to talk about that in a keynote speech, and you can 
you know, tell lots of good stories and connect with people. It felt a bit kind of jazz hand, you know, we'd, we'd go in, do some stuff <laughs> and then leave. And then, you know, what's the impact? Is there any lasting impact? And so slowly but surely started to kind of build our consultancy business, which we're just getting off the ground and our coaching. Just, you know, that vision that we had as the team in Rio to be the difference, create history and inspire the future is absolutely what is, you know, still at the heart of who we are as people today. And it's, you know, that's what more than five years ago, but it's still there. And it's, it's really taken, as Helen said, that amount of time to really find a place where we're like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, we are now, this is who we are, this, these are our values, this is, these are our super strengths, and really go at it as we, as we had as, as athletes. Awesome. And I, I think in some ways it must be really exciting to kind of, you, you've obviously been very high achievers, but transitioning into new careers that you can be, get as excited about in a different way, but have still so much to go for and achieve uh, in a different sort of way must be really exciting for you both you both have i know written a book that's that's out this october which is very exciting can you tell our listeners a bit about what the inspiration behind that was and what our readers can look forward to when they hopefully pick up go down to the local bookshop and 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 buy it well the inspiration i I guess just came from the our careers the the 18 years of probably more failures than triumphs if we're honest and Really, once we had started to understand ourselves as individuals and really some of the, you know, some of the tools that we learn how to get the best out of ourselves, we wanted to then be able to, to share that with other people. I think that was the, the mm-hmm. thing. Like it took us a long time to figure out how to get the best out of our team. And that was the inspiration, really, to, to kind of share that with the reader or the listener if they want the audio book instead um and yeah what they will get from the book is a very honest authentic account of some of those hard learnings but they'll yeah they'll get the the kind of our story alongside those experiences and yeah some tips about how to well not tips really because it, it's it's more foundational hard work but how great really great teams I think it's the result of many many late nights long conversations notes all down on bits of paper notebooks phone notes for years because we were completely obsessed with what we did in getting the best out of ourselves our teammates and the team itself and you know it influenced the books that we read the TED talks we, we watched and listened to the podcast we listened to it it really impacted everything that we did. And I think it's the it's the result of all of the, the things that have kind of, that we've learned and that was mm-hmm. provided growth opportunities for us. And as Helen said, it was about sharing it and sharing a slightly different perspective because I think there's lots of business books around this area. There's lots of books from kind of male athletes or particularly male sports teams, successful male sports teams but actually from from the, the female perspective from people that have actually done it from within a team I think is a new perspective and something that we really thought was worth putting out there awesome well everyone listening to this I hope you will rush out and purchase it and I can't wait to read we are sadly at the end so we're going to have to do our wrap up questions quickly but this is the 40 minute mentor so we are big believers in the power of mentorship do you have a mentor and if there was one person in the world that you could be mentored by, who would it be? What a question. Maybe I'll take the first one. <laughs> okay, go on then. 
Yeah, I do. I I don't know if they would know that <laughs> they're a mentor to me. Um, so it's not a formal thing in terms of, yes, you are my mentor. But yeah, no, I certainly I keep in contact with a, a couple of psychologists. One of them's our old psychologist, actually, who I, I contact reasonably regularly now that I'm on that, that journey of a, a team psychologist. And yeah, it, just being able to check and challenge my own thoughts, get ideas and, and just have conversation. It's something I, I really, really do find very valuable. Yeah, I don't have one um, formally, as Helen said, but I I think I would like one. And I think I do tap into lots of different opinions and thoughts in our kind of network of people that we are surrounded by. And also, I think you can get kind of little hints of mentorship in the people that you kind of follow on social media. It's kind of the positive aspect of social media. You know, do you follow lots of different people with different opinions who can challenge your way of thinking? So that's, an, and then we can have conversations off the back of that. Second question, have you got an answer for that one? Not like someone definite. I think that it would change so many different times. It would be people that I'm inspired by in that moment. Brene Brown is someone who... Yeah, I mean, she's someone who I, I just, you know, I think just gets it. You know, someone who inspires a lot of my thinking whether I would want her as a mentor though I'm not <laughs> not entirely sure yeah. um, we just yeah listen to her all day oh it's so hard I mean I was thinking of of someone Brené Brown certainly I think would be would be really fascinating but I was thinking of either Billie Jean King or like Serena Williams someone who has excelled in their field as an athlete and Serena is still obviously competing but has also very vocal about their principles, their values, things that they really care about and wanting to make an impact in society and really grasping that opportunity because I think that's something that I wrangle. What difference can I make? Awesome. Those are great, great ones. And I mean, you have already created an incredible legacy, but when you look back at the end of this next phase of your career, what would you want to be remembered for? I think someone who cared, someone who cared about what they did and who they worked with. I think I'll leave it at that. Yeah, someone that was connected to them and enabled them to bring things out with, with, within this, within themselves that they didn't maybe know was there and elevated. Fantastic. And final question, what piece of advice would you give someone, perhaps it's somebody that is, is transitioning from a sporting career into business, or something else, but at at kind of crossroads, what final piece of advice would you leave them with? Mine would be to be you. I think it's so Mm. tempting, particularly when you are changing career, when you're, you know, when you're now potentially not at the top (laughs) where you you were used to being. You're not the best at what you do, potentially. And you've got those doubts and all that rubbish that goes on in our own heads at the time. Times, it would just just really focus in on who am I and what do I want to be about and just go and be that because you can't go far wrong I think if you do that I think yeah I think I would say just you make sure you unravel who you are from the role that you played because they can come so entwined that it seems like it's one of the same and actually you are still you you're not doing that role now or you've taken on a new role but you have all that learning inside of you. You have all that experience and all that knowledge 
And actually, you have that regardless of whether you're doing that role or not. And I think it's a bit like Helen said, but it's just staying true to who you are, what capabilities you have and where you want to take that. Thank you so much, Helen and Kate. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time and being fantastic 40 Minute Mentors. I know our listeners will find this super inspiring. So thank you and all the very best with the book and beyond. Cheers, James. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, James. Cheers. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.